You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. Animal domestication has been a boon to civilization. From cats that hunt vermin to dogs that help to hunt for food, we've had a great partnership with creatures we've taken into our lives. But what if that worked in the other direction? We'll talk to the animals on today's episode of Forpal History. I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm. In a recent episode, I mentioned the legendary ship the Way Warden, crewed by talking animals that left the Dunwellmish colony for points unknown. Since its departure, it has been suspected to have had a hand in several incidents through the years. Many maintain it's still afloat in spite of modern detection systems, a few world wars, and the fact that there aren't many places a three-masted ship showing up wouldn't be noticed. While there's little physical evidence for these tales, I've assembled the ones where they were recorded by those with a scrap of credibility, or at least people with nothing they wanted to blame on someone else. It also helped if there was more than one written account, but those who suspect talking animals to be up to no good ever since they uttered their first words will often maintain that they were in the best position to make sure the records got fudged, if not destroyed. And it's not like a royal dynasty wants to include that kind of help in their family albums instead of a glorious battle or rescuing an ancestor from a dragon. The traditional royal families that are still around dislike being trolled about being closeted furries, and captioning their portraits regarding getting scratches or who the goodest boy is has earned a few online trolls prison time in the more authoritarian parts of the world. Oddly enough, this was credited with a push by many royal families to ban the wearing of furs, so score one for the talking animals, I guess. Right, that's what I was talking about. Um, okay, here's the instances that historians deem the most credible, given the records of the time and all that usual blah blah The Imperial warship Semaphore reported an unusual violet parrot appearing on their vessel and took it as a sign of good fortune. In the months that followed, the vessel reportedly became the source of two dozen previously unheard of sea shanties that are still popular today, the revelation that the first mate was a long-lost prince, and saw the successful negotiation of peace between the Mediterranean Sea Elves and peoples of Kreatoa, apparently aided by a song and dance number that is unfortunately lost to us. The peoples of the Cockatiel Islands have legends of an angry but helpful god of fur and claws. Their description of this being look a lot like a grizzly bear wearing a waistcoat. It supposedly led the islanders to discover new ways to cultivate their island's limited resources and taught them how to create cards, dice, and the rules for gambling via these items. This bear also is thought to have instructed the people on how to fleece any passing vessels with great games of chance as well as how to ambush them when they came looking to reclaim their losses. The Cockatiel Islands are still a gambling tourism destination to this day. U.S. President Abel T. Waddingham managed to broker an historic peace treaty between the growing American states and the so-called wild territories of the West that may have been aided by one General Secretary of Important Affairs, Yana P. Ergot. Interestingly, in all written accounts, Ms. Ergot is never referred to as anything other than a trusted cabinet member of the Waddingham administration. 
Had it not been for the recent adoption of photography as a method of record-keeping, we might never have seen that Ergot was a duck-billed platypus who favored divided riding dresses and wore spectacles. A ship of the Blighted Sea Nation, named the Abyssal Wake, encountered the Waywarden while the former colony ship was becalmed in the open ocean. Like all of their contact with other vessels, the Abyssal Wake moved into attack. This incident reinforces the idea that talking animals share some kind of bond, as it turned out the Waywarden had an escort, a pair of whales from a species hoped to be extinct, uh, called Seely Raskier, which I'm completely mispronouncing. It translates roughly to sail faster or we're all going to die. The whales rammed the wake repeatedly, their armored heads cracking the ensorcelled hull until the vessel retreated. The ship's log was recovered from the wake's wreckage after it was defeated by a merchant coalition that had gotten sick of losing vessels to, as they put it, a bunch of waterlogged unemployed wizards who thought dressing in black substituted for a personality. In the log, a shaky hand describes the Waywarden in detail, with warnings not to approach it under any circumstances. It also talks about the haunting voice the crew heard resonate through the ship, presumably from the whales, Kamut if you're near hard enough. That was spelled phonetically in their log, so I'm not sure they knew exactly what was being said to them. I guess the walls being smashed by monster whales probably was enough to go on for them. No other reports of these whales have made it into the historical record. The Ironheart Weststone Extraction Company had some entries in their books about a deep ice rig they constructed near the Arctic Circle. The foreman, a dwarf named Uther Forgedeep, reported the employees adopting a friendly walrus they nicknamed Sir Bigglesby. In addition to assisting in suggesting places to avoid as the ice was too thin, the walrus is credited with warning the rig's residents that they were about to be attacked by a band of glacier giants. By the well-timed use of distractions, drilling tools, and explosives, the giants were set adrift on an ice flow that was capsized by a leviathan whale before it passed the horizon. Workers in the Arctic still set out oysters for the local walruses in the hopes of good luck. Some even leave bottles of claret on the shore, which Sir Bigglesby was said to be fond of. The lair the glacial giants used was eventually found, though it's been overrun with one of the largest walrus colonies ever seen, so perhaps Sir Bigglesby wasn't all that worried about the oil rig? During World War I and three quarters, the Allied Kingdoms found an unexpected ally in the form of a bar-tailed godwit. At first, they only heard thomic radio transmissions from someone calling out enemy troop movements. When asked to identify itself, the voice said it was Captain Flickworth Hawks. It's been noticed that talking animals tend to give themselves titles a lot of the time. Scholars aren't sure if it's because they think it commands more respect or they don't know that titles and names are two different things. When the information provided by Hawks was confirmed by infantry lancers and a few battlefield seers, his broadcasts turned the tide of the war, helping to push the Green Death back to the portals the Grimwood Pact had created. Hawks finally revealed himself to the 75th Elvish Company's commander, Lord Oligrass. After several questions about why a godwit would have the surname Hawks and where it obtained bird-sized broadcasting equipment, Hawks directed the company to a prison camp hidden in the deep forests where a remnant of the Grimwood forces still held on. The 75th infiltrated and took the camp, liberating many thought dead and rescuing a young, gray-skinned woman who immediately took a shine to Lord Ellagrass. Hawks was best bird at their wedding, where it was revealed that the bride was from one of the Grimwood Pact's noble houses, ones that hadn't been seen on our side of the gateways yet. Before Hawks could be found and interrogated, all involved agreed that, by the various laws they adhered to, the marriage had brokered at least a tenuous peace between both sides of the conflict. The reward for Hawks' whereabouts is still unclaimed, and as elves are long-lived and talking animals don't have a known lifespan, it could be out there for a long, long time.
The coastal town of Bayoun managed to have three talking monkeys in a naval coat be their mayor for over 30 years before anyone noticed. Locals claimed they knew it was a trio of monkeys the whole time, they just played along for reasons. Their town did prosper under Mayor Carth Willager's time in office, though the proposed banana groves never took off given the regional climate. When a reporter uncovered the identity of the mayor, the planned confrontation was a bit anticlimactic, as all that was found was the naval coat, the mayor's wide-brimmed hat, and a note telling the reporter that, having read their work, they could at least respect their talent at, quote, flinging poo. Local legends say Carth Willager, singly or collectively, still watches over the town and may even be among the citizens. The wearing of long articles of clothing has been a tradition in Bayoun ever since, apparently to help Carth Willager blend in more thoroughly should he decide to help the community again. A short event in Skaggsburg, Missouri saw three dancing and singing frogs make an appearance at a gubernatorial debate in the late 1800s. The two candidates were about to square off when the three frogs, who, in song, called themselves Hobart, Ivor, and Plutarski, and began performing on the debate stage. This is another oddity regarding talking animals. There are a great many instances that they appear to hold viewers in some kind of hypnotic state, allowing the animals to finish whatever presentation they're giving. Uh, the five-minute-long song detailed how the two men standing for office would be disastrous for the state, but a choice still had to be made. They listed numerous scandals, affairs, and at least three murders between the pair of politicians. When all was said and done, the debate was called off, the candidates called for a meeting to reschedule, and both of them escaped to Mexico before the Frog's lyrics could be confirmed as factual. In the end, the write-in candidate, one Jessica Pudolsch, was elected. New York saw a brokerage rise from apparently nowhere called Black and Brown Investments. During the 1920s, they made huge amounts of money via speculation in futures markets, especially in agricultural crops and the dairy industry. They continued investing their clients' money even after a food surplus caused a dip in prices, followed by several bad harvests that the surpluses couldn't cover. Black and Brown issued several confusing statements about how their system was a new method of investing that they called a chain of blocks that could ensure that their brokerage's assets would always be of the highest value. In retrospect, the fact they used common slang for money as cheese or cheddar should have been a tip-off that something was weird about this firm. When one of B&B's largest clients tried to get their money out of the brokerage and was sent actual blocks of cheese, the authorities were called in. They raided the headquarters of the firm, which revealed that the multi-floor building on Wall Street was filled nearly floor to ceiling with cheese in various states of preservation. The rats that were apparently running the building were surprised at their visitors, with the official police reports stating that one of the rats yelled, Cheese it, fellows, it's the cops. Though that's now speculated. Perhaps the officer thought it was funny. Now streaming on the Fantasy Network on TFN Audio, it's Vorpal History. Every episode, we take a look at historical events so fantastic, you might even think they were true. We start with the founding of the Dunwellmish colony in North America by unwanted adventurers, explore how necromancy shaped future conflicts, and take a look at the effect that talking animals have had on events worldwide. So come along on our delving into the obscure, the arcane, and the unbelievable things that we're pretty sure happened on Vorpal History. The past has never been more magical. Vorpal History on the Fantasy Network. Creator-distributed, fan-supported. Um... This might have been a bit of an embellishment on behalf of the police, but the fact that Black and Brown was run by talking rats was confirmed by the conversation had through a locked vault door with the rats in question. When the vault was eventually opened, they found only a few gnawed-on pieces of cheese and a rat-sized hole in the floor. Years later, a man named Klein O'Donnell said he'd been at least partially responsible for the collapse of B&B, 
He'd owned a cheese shop in New York and had been about to go under when several talking rats had offered to help him in exchange for food, specifically cheese. He agreed, and they managed to increase his business by being publicly seen at his rival stores, making them appear to be infested with vermin. The rats apparently learned how cheese was acquired and found Mr. O'Dontel's financial papers, creating their own investment firm and helping to usher in the stock market crash of 1929. The Westminster Kennel Club was holding its annual dog show in 1902, just a few years after ironing out some issues with the extra planar creatures and what counted as a dog, never mind the breed. An upstart club attempted to put on an unlimited breed show where the requirements were, more or less, having four legs and at least a passing interest in squirrels. The spectacle was undeniable, given that they allowed hellhounds, spawn of Anubis, devil dingoes, pegapugs, tiangu, and Cerberuses. Cerberus. Cerberus. Whatever the three-headed ones are called. It's kind of an argument starter, really. Anyway, after building a show course that's still standing today, mostly because it had to be built really well to survive the show, the first annual all-breed championship was held the day before the more established club's event. It was hosted by a talking dog that called himself Blink, as his most prominent trick was teleportation. Blink went on to perform small feats of prestidigitation, as well as participate in the judging. The actual event resulted in numerous casualties, mostly from fire and what the papers of the time called otherworldly maladies. It wasn't well known that certain life forms from other dimensions gave off harmful effects just by existing, and in a few extreme cases, these animals had never been in proximity to one another before. The fact that Elysian Terriers and Brimstone Retrievers explode on contact was just one of many discoveries made that day. Another was that Blink wasn't actually in charge of the event, but was convinced to run it by one Countess Maratabi, who, by Blink's description, was a very large cat. People who knew the Countess said they never questioned her appearance, assuming it was some kind of glandular condition, and not to be commented on for fear of being rude. The Countess was never found, though a good friend of hers who raised toy elven terriers wondered if she'd complained too much about the Westminster Kennel Club not accepting her beloved dogs as an official breed while in the Countess's presence. Blink, of course, couldn't easily be contained, and was last seen a few years later doing street magic for treats. Attempts to revive the all-breed championship have been classified as crimes in most cities, if not attempted terrorism. Cirque de Mer is a traveling circus that has been in some form of operation since at least the time of the Civil War, and its ties to the Way Warden's crew is more direct than most talking animal incidents. One of their sideshow attractions is a talking animals exhibit, said to be either from the Way Warden itself or descended from the animals that disembarked to seek their fortune. <laughs> disembarked, hey, that, that's pretty good. Trained animal acts weren't uncommon, and the ones that were said to talk were often in the company of other mundane animals, often as a part of a carnival game where Marx tried to guess which was the talker, or tried to trick them into revealing themselves. When Cirque de Mer had more reports of acts of greater complication than most traveling shows, it wasn't seen as terribly noteworthy. Until, that is, someone started tracing its route across the world. In one out of three major cities the show visited, some kind of social reordering event would happen. The upper crust would see an overturning of their fortunes in favor of previously humble citizens, political dynasties would fall, and suspects wanted for questioning would vanish in a puff of fur or feathers. Two communities in Tennessee were coming to blows over local resources when the circus set up shop between the two settlements. As a part of the show, a moose and a wolf each took on the roles of generals fighting for the honor of one of the two towns, named Whisper and Old Fork, respectively. They called for volunteers from the crowd who were only too happy to fight for their hometowns, 
taking up wooden sabers and padded arrows. As the fight went on, the generals were joined by other performers of various species, singing and performing music that, according to witnesses, mirrored the action on the battlefield. When one side appeared to lose, the other side was allowed to donate to a resurrection fund that let their fallen soldiers rise again and enter the fray. When the circus left after three days of this, the residents of Whisper and Old Fork didn't quite have an answer for who actually won the battle, but the remembrance of this make-believe conflict is still held today in an event they call Pummelfest. Interestingly, no one has ever died in this event, even though children and the elderly participate. While in some quarters the animals are credited with bringing peace through collective sort of violence, it was also noted that a barter system had to be adopted a few months after the circus left due to a sudden lack of hard currency. Even the elvish kingdoms overseas weren't immune, as the Cirque de Mer found its way to their ancient capitals, their noble leaders were said to have flocked to the animal exhibits not only to see creatures that weren't native to their lands, but apparently to listen to the ones able to sing songs and recite tales from elvish history that had been long forgotten. An owl that claimed it was called Chancellor Misitherine held long discussions with the elven rulers for hours on end. The collected works from these sessions forms the basis of a series of scholarly works entitled The Missing Chronicle of the Sylvan Peoples Born on Silent Wings. At least that's the translation. Even though it supposedly, if you'll pardon the term, dovetails with existing elvish lore perfectly, a few of their scholars call the book Hoots for Fools. That's kind of the translation, but there's more swearing in the direct version. It's also worth noting that the circus charged audiences by the quarter hour to attend at Chancellor Misitherine's lectures. In all, the circus was present at or shortly preceded the outbreak of at least two wars, eight dynastic terminations, five adoptions of radically altered political systems, seven coups, and two confirmed natural disasters where their performance involved leading parts of the population to safety while the other perished. These were an earthquake and a volcanic eruption, for the record. The circus also appears to precede the appearance of talking animal companions to people who are either already prominent in society or who soon rise to such prominence, apparently due to their newfound friend's advice. Given what would appear to most governmental entities as a mixed reputation, the Cirque de Mer has been banned in several major countries and only allowed to perform in places far from major population centers. It continues to this day, having been given a kind of asylum in the city of Las Vegas, Though many casinos require a 24-hour waiting period between attending the circus's theatrical performance and setting foot in their gaming area, just to be safe. In World War II, a Syrian brown bear took command of a dwarven tactical armored company when they came under fire and their warlord was killed. Soon, Lord General Vaughn was leading the charge as the dwarves fought their way through the forces of the Chthonic Primordium besieging them. While General Vaughn did display a measure of strategic competence in the theater of war, it's assumed that the sight of a bear in a helmet riding atop a mechanized armored vehicle probably did a lot to cause the enemy's morale to dip significantly. The Lord General's demand to be present at the peace talks was at first welcome, due again to the intimidation factor of having a bear on your side. Unfortunately, General Vaughn had discovered a taste for alcohol, and the peace talks were, for the most part, an open bar. After the third incident of near mauling, it was found more prudent to give the bear general their own private room somewhere with enough spirits to make them hibernate for a week. This was an unfortunate solution, as several skirmishes and even small wars in various countries in Europe, Asia, and Africa were reportedly encouraged by an often inebriated bear in a dwarven helmet. And here's a couple of recently unearthed tales of talking animals not from the Waywarden directly uh, that I thought I'd include just for completeness sake. Egyptian pharaoh Shepsakere, recorded on the Giza tablet, is a tale of the pharaoh and a relative of his, Neferefe, hunting a particularly handsome and large gazelle. 
Their quarry vanished into a grove of undergrowth and acacia trees. A voice from the flora at first gave advice to ship Sakure where to shoot his bow, and after several misses began to taunt him for poor archery skills. Angered, the pharaoh shot arrow after arrow until his and Neferefe's quivers were empty. At this point, a lion emerged from the trees, and according to the tale, at this point, a lion emerged from the trees, and according to the tale, said something along, along the lines of, You done goofed. Neferefe was next in line for the throne, and it's suspected he started the practice of mummifying lions for royal tombs. It's unclear if this was considered a great idea by the animals living in the Nile, or was just a safety precaution and this not happening again. Romulus and Remus, abandoned on the shore of the Tiber River by order of King Amelius, the future founders of Rome would be nursed by a she-wolf. She taught them to speak Latin, was frustrated by their disinterest in spelling, and eventually sought a human shepherd to take over raising the brothers before they drove her to drink. Later, when arguing over which hill Rome should be built on, Remus favored one overlooking the she-wolf's cave. Legend has it that she killed Remus in what was the first recorded homeowner protest against eminent domain. A temple believed to have been built by an offshoot of the Aztec Empire was uncovered that appeared to show a jaguar was their high priest or king, perhaps both. The carvings and statues all depicted more realistic than usual large cat wearing elaborate headdresses and holding a small bladed makwakwik with its tail and basking in the glow of what's believed to be a sun god. While the Jaguar was apparently a good enough leader to have gotten a sizable settlement complete with Pyramid up and running, the later carvings show a bit of disaffection with the Cat King. Archaeologists believe that an attempt to switch all crops to catnip helped cause the downfall of the settlement, with the inhabitants burning all of the crops before abandoning the place. It's not known where they got the catnip in the first place, as it's not native to South America. Hi, this is Klaus Holm, and I'm the creator of Tempest Investigations, if you like TV shows like Buffy, Angel, and Supernatural, you should check out Tempest Investigations. Listen to it on TFN, creator-distributed, fan-supported. Even if only half of these tales of Loquentis and Amalbus are true, it's pretty easy to see why some quarters take them so seriously. The House Un-American Animalities Committee hearings highlighted a lot of these concerns from factual to fanciful, but as we've noted before, blaming political upheaval on verbose critters has long been the political version of saying that the dog ate your homework. And with no help that I know of from any speaking species apart from myself, this has been Vorpal History, a look at fantastical history of the world which, for all you know, is totally real. You shouldn't get your history facts from a podcast, especially one that still hasn't gotten around to those citations. Get more of this podcast and other great content on the Fantasy Network.